everyone. Welcome to Brunch with Brent. My name is Brent Jerva. Um, joining me today is Kyle Rankin. Uh, Kyle, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing great. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Some of maybe our community members would know you, Kyle, for uh, you currently are the chief security officer at Purism and I believe vice president as well. Is that accurate? That is correct. Yeah. Many hats. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes, right? You also have quite a history with the Linux Journal. You're tech editor there for something like 10 years uh, and freelance columnist there for a long time. Yes, it's, it's pretty crazy, especially when you think about, you know, if you're a columnist, that means you're writing something new every month. <laughs> <laughs> right. And my column was all about a new, a new tip or a tech tip or, you know, hack or something like that uh, every month. And the first year, no problem. Second year, still pretty much no problem. On the third year, when you're looking at every month to write something new that you've never written about before, it really, it really becomes a challenge at that point. Did you find that helped you kind of grow your skill set because you were constantly hunting for something kind of uh, curious or something new or novel? It's true. Um, sometimes people would ask me if I'd ever considered writing full time. And I said, no, I, there's, there's no way I could write full time because I, I need to work in technology just to have enough new information to write about. You could sort of tell when I was really engaged at whatever I was doing at work because I would instantly have, you know, five or six or seven column ideas uh, that would play out over the, over the next year, you know, and flesh it out with other ones in between. Nice. I guess you would probably keep a running list of kind of those ideas and, and pluck them as they seem appropriate for the writing that you're doing. Uh, that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, at the beginning, I had a year or so mapped out already. <laughs> that seems like a luxury. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. At some point, the well runs dry and you do find yourself every month saying, well, and the other challenge is, you know, let's say we're going five or six years into this. The next challenge is, wait, did I write about this? I don't remember anymore. Of course. Right. Right, right. Our memory is only so good. Yeah. Yeah. So I would find myself coming up with an idea and then looking and finding, nope, nope, I already wrote about that four years ago. Oh, wait, past me already thought of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny. Um, and do you find yourself sort of missing that in your everyday now? I do. I miss the Linux Journal community in particular. They were always very supportive. Um, and I would always get really good feedback. I mean, I know sometimes uh, tech writers get the opposite, where the only feedback they get is someone correcting them or giving them a nice, well, actually, to the gut. But yeah, in my case, it was always pretty positive when I got feedback at all. You know, usually you're just sort of writing into a void. But that's the thing I'm, I think I miss the most is you would go to a conference and every now and then you would run into someone who's like, oh, I read your column. I really enjoyed, you know, such and such uh, a, a article you wrote. You know, it was just kind of really gratifying that would give you that extra bit of fuel to continue on for another year. Did that kind of connection also make you realize how many people you were having an impact on? Uh, because sometimes as writers or even podcasters, we don't always know how many people we're reaching or how profound the, that impact can be. Uh, was that something that hit you? Most definitely. Because with, without that, if I, for example, if I hadn't gone to various free software Linux conferences... I would have never even really known that anybody <laughs> read my column except for the occasional email I would get or something. But yeah, meeting actual people and, you know, in some cases, a, a number of people that, you know, got to know me through my writing and they would recall different things that I wrote in the past. Uh, and yeah, it, it's, it really 
built this kind of interesting set of community to where now there's a couple of conferences that pre-coronavirus, you know, I would go to annually. And you, you sort of run across the same group of people that you met initially just because it said, hey, I, hey, your name sounds familiar. Oh, I've read your column before, you know, that sort of thing. That's amazing. Um, it's also nice to hear that that community is still sort of reaching out to you in a way. To use a big word, one of the tragedies when projects change or shift or sort of change, uh, you know, change directions is that sometimes the community doesn't know where to go anymore. So I'm glad to hear that they're still finding you uh, here and there. Yeah, well, and it, it helps that right now the Linux Journal site is still online. At, at one point when it shut down, it was unclear whether that would be the case. Um, and there's a lot of it. I mean, I, I got so many solicitations uh, from people to mirror it or to offers to host it and all of that sort of thing, which, of course, you know, I I had nothing to do with that one way or the other. There's I, I was just a editor and columnist. But fortunately, because it's still online, you know, there's still quite a few people that come across these articles because, you know, at one point I even considered the idea of maybe sort of rounding up all of the articles that were still relevant, which it, I started reviewing them and it turned out there were quite a few, even some that were, you know, almost 10 years old that still were as as usable today. And I considered maybe like doing some sort of ebook or, you know, something like that. But yeah, so because they're still online, I'm, I'm getting still, you know, people that come across, I mean, I come across <laughs> my articles sometimes when I'm trying to look up how to do something and I realized, oh, wait, I, I already wrote that for Linux <laughs> Journal, you know, seven years ago or whatever. And I think that's sort of in a nutshell part of what can be a little bit challenging about our internet decentralized world is that some of this great information just sort of disappears sometimes. And, and uh, somehow maintaining that reference, especially with the number and the quality of articles that was in a place like Linux Journal, just uh, seems valuable. And so... I mean, I guess that's the Wayback Machine, you know, the, but um, if we can somehow maintain those, I think I think you're on the right track with that sort of thinking, but it's not always obvious how to accomplish it. Oh, you're absolutely right. And yeah, thank, thank goodness for sites like the Wayback Machine that archive some of this stuff. And, and thankfully, they started archiving shortly after some of my early GeoCities attempts on the internet. So um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they didn't capture those. Uh, thank goodness. And then all of the stuff they capture for the most part is is ready to survive forever. I think you're beginning to date yourself there a little bit with that GeoCities mention. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Drop the GeoCities mi mention and, hey, tell me about your first laptop. Well, it was the size of a VHS tape. You know, oh, you don't, well, let me tell you what those are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, luckily, I can relate to all of those. <laughs> But for those who uh, don't know the Linux Journal and sort of the history and the, the, let's say, the trials and tribulations it went through, can you give us sort of the, the Coles Notes version? Because it, it was a, around for a long time and it was really important for a lot of people. And yet today we don't, we don't have it anymore. So can you give us the quick, uh, quick sort of version? Because I know it kind of hit you personally as well. If you want the full, you know, unabridged story, I gave a couple of talks on the subject called the 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 um, death and resurrection of Linux Journal. Uh, I gave a keynote at uh, FreeNote Live on that subject. But the, the the Cliff Notes version of it is, you know, Linux Journal started shortly after the announcement of the Linux kernel, and so it it pretty much tracked the history of Linux itself um, and started, you know, relatively relatively modestly. And grew pretty rapidly along with Linux, Linux, and it sort of became this mirror of of Linux for a long time. And then I joined uh, about at this point maybe twelve years ago, I guess. 
uh, and started writing as a columnist. And uh, this was during the heyday. So I, I interviewed to uh, be a columnist at a, a um, Linux World Expo co- conference back when they did those. If I remember correctly, it was the same one where IBM was spray painting Tux Penguins on the sidewalk, uh, <laughs> just to, to date that a little bit. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was, you know, that was that brief period of t- that period of time where IBM had become, you know, before that they were sort of like the, the original 800 pound gorilla that everyone was thought was evil. And then at that point they embraced Linux and everyone just, just sort of changed their minds you know, almost in, overnight, you know, because at the time we needed a uh, 800 pound gorilla in our corner. And you could argue now that Microsoft, this is a, you know... We're seeing something similar, yeah, even news today, right? Something similar, yeah. You could argue that Microsoft's doing the same thing now because they've sort of traditionally followed in IBM's footsteps as far as that goes. But anyway, yeah, so back to Linux journals. So started there then and sort of along with the, the heyday of Linux where you started seeing it very easily show up in corporations. You didn't really have to fight to get it... Uh, installed. There was, you know, professional support options. Red Hat was huge. They went public, that sort of thing. Um, And then, you know, if we fast forward maybe five, six years, the publishing industry itself was undergoing a lot of problems. For example, Borders had closed their shops and uh, periodicals that were getting a lot of revenue from just store shelf um, sales, uh, including Linux Journal, you know, had some had some trouble there because at that point you had a couple of you know you had small book retailers and Barnes and Noble were pretty much the only games in town if you were a magazine. So, the Linux Journal made the difficult decision to go digital only um, at uh, shortly after that, just because they needed to make ends meet. You know, I mean, it's very expensive. Um, the publishing costs kept going up, um, and it's very expensive to print and ship magazines. So. Uh, they went digital only. That was very controversial, um, but it was necessary to survive. And then um, fast forward another handful of years, and it basically just uh, I there's a lot of analysis about why, but just the the community changed a bit, and the way that we were approaching the community was really based more on sort of traditional uh, the traditional core audience because that was the most vocal audience of of ours and the one that really uh, was was supportive of us the most. But um, in the meantime, we didn't really branch out into what had become the greater Linux community, uh, at least in the way that we really should. And as a result, that combined with the fact that it's easier to pick up new readers if you have a magazine on a shelf that they can see. Um, Like, oh, what's this? And then, oh, I want to subscribe. So in the absence of those things, it was kind of challenging. And we ultimately ran out of steam, um, announced that we were closing up shop, um, which was really difficult. And then in the last minute, we were, we were resurrected. Someone, uh, uh, private internet access came in and, and saved the company. And so we sort of had this opportunity for rebirth. And so all of us, you know, that were involved were really excited, you know, because right before that I had written this really heartfelt sort of eulogy <laughs> for, for Linux Journal, uh, sort of encapsulating the last 10 years. So uh, we came back and we really started focusing on, on learning all of the lessons that got us there and started, you know, turning things around. And I was very excited about the future of it. And then just sort of out of the blue, a number of months in, we, we got word that um, everything needed to be shut down, that we, we weren't quite to the point where we could make it 100% on our own. Although arguably we probably could have uh, with a little bit more headway to prepare. But yeah, so it just sort of the, the the cord was pulled, and then we died a second time. Man. So then I wrote 
a second eulogy, you know, about a, a maybe a year and a half after the first one, uh, which is weird because I had already said everything I wanted to say before. So I, I, I ended up calling the column the awkward goodbye because it really <laughs> reminded me of, you know, if you've ever gone to a restaurant with somebody and, you know, you, you eat, you have a great time. And well, well, back, remember when you went to restaurants with people? Yeah. So if we can go back in, in time to when that happened <laughs> and you would, you would eat with people um, that you didn't live with. And then when you were done, you go out and go out to the front of the restaurant, right? And you would say your goodbyes. If you're close friends, you would hug. Remember when you would hug people? So you would hug people or you would shake your hand back when we did that. Then you'd say goodbye and you'd leave. But then every now and then, you both would realize, oh, wait, we're both parked in the same area. So we just did our goodbyes. We did our really good goodbyes. And now we have to awkwardly walk to the same parking lot, <laughs> you know? And then you get to your, your cars or whatever, and then you're deciding, well, what do we do now? Uh, you know, do we just high five or do we wave or do we just like repeat the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. Repeat the whole thing. Or do we just kind of like, like don't pay, ignore each other while we're walking? I mean, what is super awkward. And that's, that's sort of what writing that column reminded me of because I'd already said goodbye. Um, and now I'm trying to do it again. I don't know. So I, I mostly just talked about the concept itself and, and, and awkwardly, awkwardly uh, closed down the column. And I would imagine was pretty emotional for you to, you know, trying to bring it back. And it sounds like um, PIA was sort of a funding body there in a way. And then it just sort of disappeared. And, and having that lack of control sometimes uh, can be really challenging for the people involved who are putting their hearts into it, right? I can't speak for everyone, but at least for me, I think the biggest emotional hit was the first time. Um, because we didn't know how the story was going to go. So for as far as we knew, it was dead for good. And so I sort of went through the grieving process then um, and, and did, you know, all of the soul searching I was going to do. And, and honestly, I would say that it's the death of Linux Journal that that was, was at least partially, if not mostly instrumental in me making the decision to go work at Purism full time. Oh, wow. Yeah, because before that, you know, I've, I've been involved with Purism um, on the sidelines and sort of behind the scenes since the beginning. So I, I wrote the one of the first reviews of the Librem 15 laptop when it was still in the crowdfunding phase. I, I met with Todd um, in person, and apparently the laptop he had for me to review was like the Librem 15 prototype. Like there was one, you know? <laughs> and so we're sitting there, and I think, you know, I'm sort of feeling him out to see, you know, what kind of person started is starting this company? Is this the real deal? And he's sort of feeling me out a little bit to say, hey, do I trust giving this guy my one laptop <laughs> that I, that I have. In any case, I, he, he did let me, he did let me review it. Um, and I wrote what I consider to be a fair review, um, talking about the pros and cons. Uh, but what really interested me about purism at the time was that Todd really seemed like the real deal because, you know, a lot of times in this community, you see people that know the right words to say and know how to sort of rally the community by saying the right things. But you, you know, that they're not really they don't really believe it or they, you know, don't have any history with it. But, you know, I, I discovered, no, he's the real deal. He believes what he's saying and there's a future here with this. So from that point on, I sort of on the, on the background, I would, uh, you know, sort of work behind the scenes, emailing him, giving advice, um, helping out with various things, including some of the internal PureOS projects early on. And then every now and then we would talk back and forth, Hey, you know, maybe I should go work there, but it never, you know, the timing just wasn't right. And then, once Linux Journal died, and I was sort of grieving that, I started looking at my own life, I guess, 
my first eulogy for Linux journal started off as like a eulogy and then it turned into a rant <laughs> by the end. And while I was ranting, you know, at, you know, the community is, is maybe lost its way and we're, you know, we've changed and what's going on. I realized, you know, I'm kind of pointing some fingers at myself too, because, you know, I felt like I haven't been doing enough to support this thing. I, I really cared about, uh, you know, I'm spending my days job, you know, doing perfectly fine things, but, uh, you know, an interesting work, but it was just sort of traditional system and work. And the companies that I was working for didn't necessarily forward free software or Linux in any way, uh, other than the fact that I used them. So it sounds like there was a bit of a disconnect between your own personal ideals and where you were putting most of your time. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, I realized, you know, I was fortunate enough in the way that I've worked my career so far that I could make the choice to work, you know, somewhere that aligned with my ideals and that I should if I can. And I, again, I had, you know, worked long enough in the industry and built enough of a career that I was fortunate to be able to make that kind of choice, which, you know, not everyone can. But the timing was right. And I realized, no, I need to, I should be spending eight hours a day or more do, you know, forwarding my beliefs instead of, you know, just on the side, writing some articles here and there. There are always sacrifices that come with sort of making that leap, uh, I would imagine. Although, you know, here you are today doing still amazing work, uh, doing that kind of stuff. So good for you for <laughs> sort of reevaluating what was important to you. And it sounds like Linux Journal had a major part in that for you and sort of was a nice segue for you to move into purism. And I'm curious about what purism is in your every day now. You're putting your main focus on security. It's interesting because I'm in an executive role Sometimes when you work at a startup, especially, there, startups often, um, I mean, you know, Purism's been around long enough, I don't know that it necessarily qualifies as a startup anymore. But a lot of times when you work for a small company or a startup, there tends to be title inflation, where, you know, someone who would be a manager is now a director, and someone who would be a director is now a VP. And so, so I mean, I, this happened to me as well, you know, you just you start sort of, and you have, you don't necessarily have the roles and responsibilities of the title, but you have the title. Someone has to have the title, right? <laughs> exactly. Someone has to have the title and you, you are the head of a department. So let's give you a VP or now a C-level title, you know? And in this case though, it's a little different because it's, you know, it's, <laughs> it ends up actually having a lot of executive responsibilities, um, which I was expecting, of course. But uh, yeah, so my day-to-day -day really varies because on some days I'm working full-time on security-related work. And then, in, so some days I have sort of the chief security officer hat on. Um, and then other days I sort of have the company vice president hat on. And by that, I mean, it just sort of looking at the overall machine that we have as a company, just sort of helping every department, wherever there needs to be help, I suppose, is a way to put it. Um, so there's a lot of times where, you know, you may have a team that is working on getting something done, but they need, uh, they need someone uh, with responsibility for the company to make a decision. Uh, should we go this way or that way? Both ways are equally valid. They have pros and cons. What should we do? And without the answer, they maybe are blocked and can't go forward. So in some cases, some days I spend my you know, days answering those kinds of questions. So they, just to unblock teams um, and other days, you know, I may need to put on the hat as a as a leader of a particular team just to help get something done just because they need extra help on a project or something. Every day is a little bit different, actually. And I would imagine that's that's what keeps it interesting for you. If you're sort of in a position that's the same every day, you know, day in and day out, that can get 
sort of old pretty fast, I would imagine, which uh, which you've alluded to, like, uh, you know, you've automated yourself out of many jobs in the past. Uh, but in this case, it sounds like there's always something new thrown at you that can keep you sort of curious and interested and and, and really quite valuable, really. Never really a dull moment, I, I can say that for sure. Um, there's always something, you know, there's always a new challenge, something new to work on, and always definitely new things to learn. You know, I've learned about all kinds of other disciplines, uh, not just learning more about either systems administration in the past or security, uh, but just, you know, anything from marketing to, you know, we're, we're a hardware company, we, we sell hardware and just that whole supply chain, all of the operations and all of the things required with sourcing hardware and selling hardware and all of that's all been, you know, just fascinating. And because I work with so many smart people who are just experts in whatever the field is that, that they happen to be responsible for, I have this great, I, I love learning new things. And so I constantly have this opportunity to learn from people who really know what they're talking about. I would imagine a place like Purism, because of its strong ideals and commitment to those ideals, you know, a lot of free software ideals and uh, open source ideals as well would attract a certain kind of person who someone like you or I or, or uh, so many of our listeners would just love to be surrounded by that kind of person. Would you say that is sort of accurate versus some of your um, past corporate experiences, for instance? Almost universally. In, in fact, I, I can't think of anywhere I've been where I have spent more time in chat having conversations about ethics than we have here. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Whenever we, we are deciding, making some new decision about some way to go, whatever it is, whether it's a new product, software, that sort of thing, one of the foremost things that ends up coming up is, is how does this fit in with the overall free software ethos? Um, how does this fit in with our own ethics beyond that with respect to privacy and security? Are we taking freedom away from our customers or giving them more freedom? That sort of thing. It's just, it's wonderful to also have so many people in the company that already understand all of those issues. So, I mean, it's not universal, but but we do have a, a great number of people who are already experts in free software licenses and understand all of that background. So, you know, when we're discussing things like licensing or how we treat a particular piece of software, a lot of us are already on the same page. Do you find that ends up you know, because you're practicing those kind of questioning skills um, professionally, that it also helps you personally to kind of look at those topics in your own personal life? It certainly helps reinforce looking through the lens of your whatever your personal values are. If you're doing it at work for something that you could argue is is maybe is less important than how you treat your personal values and your and yourself, right? It definitely sort of reinforces that if you're spending your time at work thinking about your corporate values and how that affects people, it, it certainly spills over into thinking about how you deal with everyone in your daily life, um, especially if the ethics, if there's crossover in the ethics, you know, just treating, making sure that people are treated fairly, that you care about people's privacy, things like that. One of the reasons I mentioned that was something that kind of gave me a smile uh, when I was uh, just exploring uh, through your website. And you mentioned on there that uh, some of your uh, sort of explorations in Linux and open source and free software uh, led to changing the way that you shave, which I laughed at because I sort of approached the exact same thing and went through the same trajectory as you did. So I was like, oh, that's so, it's so great because some of what we believe in uh, with where we put our time, you know, into um, open source software and all of that uh, and hardware, of course, in your case, 
sort of spills into other areas of our life that are seemingly inconsequential, but they can equally bring us great joy, I think. I would say that safety razors and that whole technology and the advance of that technology beat the issues we have with with proprietary software by a number of decades. But you can follow that history, right? Yeah. You're right. I changed how I shaved largely because of my, my free software values. <laughs> That's a great quote. I was using a Mach 3, like a lot of people did at the time it had just come out and used it for a while. And then, you know, a number of years later, I was locked in. I had to buy razor blades just from one company, that sort of thing. And time went by and I found that they had decided to switch to a new, they had upgraded, you know, to a new version. They left you behind. Yeah. I had like four blades and two aloe strips or something. I don't know. I had a choice then. I could continue to try to get my old blades um, which are already super expensive or, you know, move to the new one. And I tried the new one and I didn't really like it. And the blades were more expensive and it was okay. But then I got to the point where I said, you know, I'm just going to use the old one. And I stopped being able to source locally those razor blades, at least the official ones. You know, I think they eventually they were able to make some knockoffs that worked, but um, I couldn't find compatible razor blades. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm trying to find compatible razor blades. I got vendor locked in with shaving. You know, this is ridiculous. This is against everything I stand for. Around the same time, I read this article about, you know, it was, it was from this website called The Art of Manliness. And it was, about, it was about how your grandpa used to shave or something like that. And I discovered, wait, there's safety razors. And wait, those razor blades are cross-compatible. They, you know, they have a standard public domain um, compatibility between all of them, you know. And, and I, I, that's it. That's what I have to do. And so I ended up just diving headfirst. Um, I guess pun always intended, um, into <laughs> shaving with a safety razor. I ended up writing a whole article about this topic for Linux Journal even, um, talking about, I mean, pretty much the 10 years of Linux Journal is just a brain dump from me <laughs> one way or the other. But yeah, I, because it, it really is this case where you see why cross-compatibility is better for the consumer and lock-in is almost never better. It, it always creates a better situation because it, it requires competition. And so, you know, in the case of safety razors, I can buy a pack of 100 safety razors for $10. And that pack of 100 safety razors will last me for two, maybe three years, maybe longer now that we're all in lockdown and you don't shave as much. You know, when you work from home, that's the first thing to go. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, so it's amazing, you know, instead of $3 a blade or whatever people pay nowadays, you know, I feel sorry for those people, just like I feel sorry for them when, they, when they're locked into some vendor that charges them a whole lot of money for stuff. I just love the parallel uh, between those two worlds. And it's like the open source ideas came a long time before software did, you know, and uh, we need to not forget about that. It's sort of a, a human ideal before it's a software or hardware, or computer hardware ideal. So uh, we can apply it in many areas in our lives. That's for sure. I mean, I'm seeing it all over the place. For instance, I recently, you know, two years ago, I remodeled my kitchen. And the popular thing to do now with kitchen sinks is to have a, you know, you get a new countertop and do it. We've saved up forever. And finally, we're going to get a new countertop and, you know, in our house and everything. So we save up, we do that. And then the question comes, well, how many holes are you going to drill uh, in your countertop? Of course. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, well, let me think about this. Well, you know what? I will do the single hole uh, sink uh, or the single hole faucet. So that way, later on, someone could choose to drill a new hole if they wanted to, but they wouldn't be stuck with a hole that they had to plug. Hmm. Well, that means you get one of those large single hole faucets that have the little pull-down sprayer. 
instead of the separate separate sprayer, right? Well, what I discovered, because I'm a home brewer, and before I had a regular kitchen sink and regular kitchen faucet, and a regular kitchen sink has one of those little aerators that you can unscrew, and there's it's threaded with a standard thread. And I had a water cooling system to cool my wort bef- when I was brewing um, before I would put it in a fermenter. And it was designed to screw onto one of those threaded faucets like you would have on a kitchen faucet. Well, when I up, quote unquote upgraded, I discovered that the new world of kitchen faucets is all proprietary. It really <laughs> <There's> is. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is. And so I have this worthless now. I mean, I had to modify it to hook up to a to a garden hose because they haven't gotten their hands on making garden hoses proprietary yet. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like it's followed me into my kitchen. Now my kitchen, even the kitchen sink is proprietary. They're trying to take everything over, <laughs> which just makes, you know, to, to bring it back a little bit, it just makes some of the work that purism is doing feel really quite important. And there are other people doing that similar work. I think we've got an amazing community who's pushing really hard to to implement these ideals as much as possible. And in many ways, it feels like we're lucky enough to be winning the sort of open source software game. And uh, it feels like you're on the sort of trailblazing side of the hardware game. Does that feel pretty rewarding for you? It's definitely rewarding. I mean, and it's at the time that we're facing now, it's extra important because uh, for a while, and this kind of also goes hand in hand with that grieving session I had when Linux Journal uh, went out of business, but it goes to sort of the sense that the community has changed and it's not in a bad way. It's just the community is made up of different people. So for instance, 20, 30 years ago, technology was not very ubiquitous. Not everyone had a, a computer with internet access, but these days it's more or less expected. I mean, there's some expectation that someone has a computer in their pocket with forever internet connectivity at all times now. But beyond that, even with free software, it has also become more ubiquitous. So, you know, when I got started, you had to fight your way to get Linux installed in a company. You had to justify using it for a file server or any kind of server at all, a web server. But then, you know, uh, starting in, let's say, like 2005 or so, or even before that, but let's say around that time was sort of this golden era where it was just assumed, well, yeah, Linux is a completely viable option for anything you might want to do on the server side. Beyond that, you know, free and open source software was a viable option for software. There was a point in time before that where that was considered, well, why would you want to see the source code that must, you know, that's, that's not desirable? But now it's sort of second nature. So you have this whole generation of people that were, that grew up and became adults in a world where they had um, instant access to technology. Uh, native access to technology, and lived in a world where free software and open source software was just an expectation. You'd see a project and, oh, I want to contribute to that. And you expected that there would probably be source code on GitHub or some other repository that you could edit, which all of that is great, but there's a downside to it, which is people who grew up in that world now um, don't really understand why vendor lock-in would be a problem because they've never really experienced vendor lock-in in the same kind of way in that it res- how, how vendors can use it to restrict you. Because um, at this point, people, a lot of vendors are still sort of um, building their influence and their power and haven't really, um, the other shoe hasn't dropped yet in many cases. 
uh, for how vendors can can misuse lock-in to con- to uh, affect the choices of their of their customers. I feel like we're seeing a different kind of vendor lock-in these days, and to me, that feels like a vendor lock-in of services. Like if you look at the Googles and the I don't know uh, those kind of large surveillance capitalism style entities, uh, it it brings the conversation in a whole other direction. Because we're not just talking hardware and software anymore. We're talking sort of the kind of things that touch our everyday lives. You may point out, well, if you use this product, this particular product will lock you into this ecosystem where you have to only get products from the same vendor because that's the only way it's compatible. And a lot of people these days would say, well, so? So what does that matter? It's not a big deal. Um, or if you start using this vendor, you will not be able to change to a different vendor uh, without a lot of pain and difficulty. And they'll say, well, but why does that matter? You know, And it's simply because they grew up in a world where the, there really wasn't, there was a lot of ubiquitous compatible technology uh, due to the success of Linux in the free and open source software movements that they could appreciate an internet with open uh, protocols that were ubiquitous you know, and were, were cross-compatible. But now it's more important than ever to have, you know, for example, the stuff that Purism is doing to try to forward those ideals and to build products that don't have interlocking because it's almost an assumption. People don't necessarily even know the risks because they haven't lived through the downsides. And so they are, you know, in some cases unaware of the world and the, the, the effects that their choices have. And so one thing that we try to do with Purism is when we're designing a product, we heavily factor in whether this would lock a customer into us as a vendor. And if it will, we actively avoid using that technology. It's a completely sort of different approach, especially when it comes to security than most vendors take. If you were to ask some average person in information security to design a product that was for high security to protect a user from something, they would take a very sort of paternalistic approach to it that sort of maybe looks down on the user a little bit as, you know, maybe a child where the the vendor is the adult who can save them from themselves, that sort of thing, and build a solution where the user has to come to the vendor for everything. They have to, has to anchor all of their trust in the vendor because the vendor knows best. Almost all of the solutions you see out there are based on that because those, those uh, engineers who designed them didn't really think about the same kind of free software ethics that that we do, um, and it's also in the vendor's advantage to to lock a customer in. Uh, but because we don't have any desire to lock the customer in, when we're designing these security measures, we have a completely different playbook, and we end up coming up with completely different technologies to achieve a similar goal. Uh, but in many cases, it, you know, obviously, in many cases, it would be to our advantage in some ways to try to lock in people or, you know, do all of that sort of things that we don't agree with. But in other ways, we have an advantage that a lot of other companies don't because there are things that we're willing to do that they would never be willing to do, such as build technology that's compatible with, with a competitor's technology, uh, just so that we have interoperability or build a technology that puts the user in control and doesn't require them to come to us for everything just because that matches with our ethics. Yeah, it seems like with that paradigm shift comes uh, real innovation simply out of need uh, to make it possible to match the ideals. And I I think that's really honorable. Well, a, a good example of it, I guess, is the first project I did for Purism when I when I started full time, which was work on 
the Librem key, which is a USB security token we have, and integration with this uh, secure boot uh, software called Heads, which is a different approach to sort of a traditional secure boot software that um, your average uh, laptop might have as an option today. Uh, So the way that the traditional solution works is the vendor has keys that they sign, and each system has a list of trusted certificates that they can use to validate a software as it boots. If it matches signatures, they allow it to run. If it doesn't match, they don't allow it to run. Early on when this was put in place, the free software community kind of went up in arms because they thought, well, this is going to stop people from booting Linux. That never really happened, um, and it probably wasn't necessarily going to happen. We're not, you know, who knows, but it didn't happen. What happened instead was that major Linux vendors such as Red Hat and Canonical had to go to Microsoft and get their software approved and signed so that it could boot with Secure Boot Enable because you either have a choice of having it on or off, uh, trusted or insecure. So we didn't want the customer to have to come to us or, or go to Microsoft to get a signature to be allowed to secure their boot process. So we took an approach where the keys that we use to sign software, we don't even necessarily sign it in the same traditional way, but the keys that we use are uh, customer-controlled keys. User-generated, right? Yeah, yeah, they can generate them. We generate some at the factory that are temporary just to protect the user in shipment. And when they get the laptop, we encourage them to change them completely with their own keys and make it, you know, make it as easy as we can to do it. But it it required a completely different approach than you traditionally would have and a lot a lot of extra work and a lot of extra engineering to do it. But and the end result to us is at least a lot better because it puts the user in full control of their computer, which we, we don't feel like a user should have to come to us and anchor their trust in us wholly uh, for them to be safe. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> I think as someone who really, you know, I really care about those things and understand how difficult they are to implement and also to have accepted widely, especially when it's such a different, you know, a change of mentality with how some of this is working. I think pushing the envelope in this area is, is really valuable. So thank you for doing the hard work. That's for sure. I want to ask you if there's anything you feel about purism that is either about its products or its culture or uh, its values that you feel is at all sort of misrepresented or misunderstood in the wider either Linux community or in the public eye? I suppose one of the main things that I see, and I've seen, I saw this from almost the very beginning before I even worked at purism, was that this whole Linux community has been hurt so many times by companies that come in and say the right words, but don't actually believe in the movement, who then take advantage of sort of the good nature and the efforts of the free software community without either contributing back or, you know, using it at the beginning and then sort of doing a bait and switch. I mean, you could argue a lot of open core projects are kind of this approach to of getting the free software community to provide initial free labor to build a product when they're in the seed round. And then once they have a proof of concept, they, they, a lot of these companies get Series A funding or Series B funding. And then at that point, they hire up some of the top contributors and pay them to work on a proprietary product you know, that they're going to sell and ultimately kind of abandon the original. So this has happened time and time again with the community. And so the, the community just really been hurt over and over again. Purism's gone to a lot of extremes to 
to demonstrate that it believes what it says. I mean, going as far as incorporating as a social purpose corporation. So the ethics are, you know, we're legally bound to the ethics. So an investor can't force us to abandon them for, for profit. But even with all of that, because the community has been um, hurt so many times, it's natural to conclude, well, this is a Purism's yet another company that is saying the right words, but doesn't actually believe it. And they say things, but they don't really want to follow through. They have all of the, you know, there's an assumption that pretty much every company has nefarious intentions. So I suppose the, the biggest thing to clear up, if necessary, is that, you know, I see this applied to Pearson from the very beginning, like when Todd first said, our goal is to make a laptop that, for example, has free software firmware, we want it to run core boot. We had people, including some people that were like core boot developers at the time who said, you're lying, you have no intention of ever doing that, you will never do that, you're just saying it to sell laptops. Even after, you know, they put a job description out to hire a full-time core boot developer, they said the same stuff. Even after they hired the position and started working on it, same sort of thing. I mean, the only thing that actually uh, silenced that kind of critique was shipping a laptop that had core boot on, you know, shipping it. Exactly, right. But I think in in some ways, you're always going to have those skeptics because it's some of this has never been done before. And so maybe it's it means you're headed in the right direction. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's all very difficult. You know, I mean, we're doing in some cases like we've run into similar things with the phone because we have these huge ambitions that are long term goals with the phone that you know are really difficult to do and incredibly challenging because in many cases it means we have to do everything from scratch because it's so different from what's out there. I mean, I've had conversations with many people on the on the subject over uh, over the years. And what I've discovered is ultimately the only thing that really silences critics, or at least most of them, is doing the thing. I think it's going in amazing places, and I hope that it continues to go in amazing places. seems like you have wonderful people working on all this stuff, so I'm sure some really amazing things will come out of it. One question I want to ask is whether you have an ask of the community or of listeners, something maybe you'd like them to see, or go see, something you'd like them to try, or something you'd like them to to think about. Sort of have something I want to say to two different sides of the community that are sort of both part of the overall Linux or free software community, which is, uh, you know, you have what I've noticed, and this is something I, I realized in my soul searching about Linux Journal, was that what's happened is as technologies become more ubiquitous and everyone just sort of now grows up and is using computers, well, when that hasn't always been the case and when it wasn't, people who were in the free software community were people to, to get that kind of knowledge to develop software, to use computers, it was not very accessible. And so it attracted, well, it attracted nerds. I consider myself among them. Uh, you kind of had to be a nerd to be willing to spend the time isolated in front of a computer, learning all of this arcane knowledge to contribute to this community and to build software. Well, if you fast forward, you know, 20 years, 30 years from that, the world's a completely different place and technology is ubiquitous, computers are ubiquitous and programming is ubiquitous and very accessible. You don't have to spend years in a basement, you know, in front of a green and black screen to develop software anymore. You, it's very accessible. And as a result, as part of that, um, you have a way more diverse non-nerd group of people who have entered the technology realm, technology careers and the free software community um, as a byproduct of that. Well, um, it's created this culture clash. And so I, I liken it to these nerds who have created the, who's decided to throw a party 
and it's a Dungeons and Dragons party. And they're, you know, they have this really great campaign um, and they're having a lot of fun. And word gets out to everybody else that, hey, I heard this really great party is on such and such a street, this address. And then you have the rest of the school show up and like all of the jocks and all the everything else, everybody else shows up to this party and they're like, oh, wow, this, this party sucks. Let's, and they, they, they you know, throw a, a kegger in the middle of this Dungeons and Dragons campaign, right? And so I would say that that's sort of what's happened in our community now where we have completely diverse uh, group in the free software community. So you have everything ranging from the traditional diehard nerdy geeks like myself and you have people that that have average social skills and come from a completely different background. I mean, it wasn't that common, you know, 30 years ago for someone to say, well, yeah, I want you to go to business school, honey, and get your degree. And then I want you to be a, a tech entrepreneur. You know, it was more like be a doctor or a lawyer or something. But now a lot of people are doing this. So you have a lot of people with MBAs. I mean, there's this whole notion of, of people being a programmer, where, <laughs> you know, they're, they're crushing their code and crushing beer cans <laughs> against their head and stuff. I've never heard that before. That's <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, can you imagine 30 years ago, someone doing that? It's, it was really, it wasn't, just wasn't the culture. So anyway, all that to say, we have this culture clash now. And what I want to say to both groups, I guess, is one, just to recognize that everyone's in the same community, whether you're this old diehard geek that knows all of this, these original kind of truths about free software, or you're someone who's just uh, come into the community more recently and who isn't aware of these things. You're one both groups are part of the community. And number two, what I would say to the people um, who were the hardcore original members of this community is to um, guide uh, the people who have just entered this community, teach them about these original, the original ethics and the original things that you, you take for granted that you learned that they were never exposed to um, in a very understanding way. I've seen, sometimes I see people in the community use these sorts of things as almost like a, a litmus test or, you know, do you, are you geeky enough to be in this community? That sort of thing, which is pretty worthless in my mind. So I would beg people that have been here for a while, use your knowledge of all these things beneficially to the community, to, uh, to all the newcomers in it, to explain to them why all these values matter, make them relevant. The people who have just joined the community, I would ask them to, to please be patient as with all of these hardcore old geeks who, who don't necessarily, who are still learning all of these new social rules that, um, that they're being exposed to now that this community is, is, is very diverse people of all kinds of backgrounds. You know, uh, if you're new to the community and you're very, and you're very extroverted, then you take you also take certain things for granted, just like the hardcore geeks may take knowledge of the uh, you know, the four freedoms for granted. You know, people who are who are very extroverted may take for granted um, that it's easy to talk to other people, it's easy to have a conversation, and and not really understand that sort of thing. I guess the final thing is I would also go back to the original group and ask them to please uh, try to try to be more open to learning these new social protocols. I see a lot of times flare-ups in the community that really come down to um, certain people digging in their heels and, and saying, you know what, I don't want to know what new social rules are. I don't want to follow any sort of new protocol. And, it's, and I shouldn't be, I, I'm also incapable of doing it. 
which I don't buy because the same kind of person could recite verbatim uh, the Klingon coming of age ceremony in Klingon <laughs> and will get into a flame war about proper <laughs> mailing list etiquette. You know, God forbid you top post on their on their mailing list. They memorize all of these very complex rules of social engagement. So having empathy and social skills for you know, regular human beings is not beyond them. It's just a matter of putting in the effort. Yeah, I feel like the thing to remember there is that we're all chasing very similar goals and we just have to communicate a little bit and understand each other to to get there together, right? And and also the value in community managers. Uh, we've gotten to know a few here and uh, they are golden. It's not a skill that was uh, necessarily recognized early on in software development, but man, does it ever feel important these days? Yeah, more important than ever because you know we we finally realized that that contribution to a community isn't simply I wrote some code and submitted it. Uh, you know, there's all of these different ways the community needs contribution. You know, everything from that code is very useful, but also documentation, also solid bug reports, also all. I mean, I'm, I, there's. 50 different levels of contribution in most of those areas we were lacking in, in a great way. We weren't necessarily lacking in the code. <laughs> well, Kyle, if uh, people wanted to get connected with you to say hi or otherwise uh, share a little bit of social connection, where, where can they find you? If you are part of the Fediverse, you can reach me at kyle at libram.one. Uh, if you use like Mastodon or clients like that. And if you use something like Twitter, you can see me at Kyle Rankin with n- no space. And I also have a personal website that is at kylerank.in. <laughs> Which I love. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much for your time. Uh, I, this was a, a lovely chat. I really enjoyed it. And I uh, hope we get to chat soon again. 